Rightio, so for for the few of you who haven't been here for the, the past uh, series that I've been going through, we are, we're picking up in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, I'll be starting from verse 16 today and uh, amazingly for my usual standards, preaching through to the end of the chapter. If I usually get more than three or four verses, that's, um, that's a, a long, longer section. Uh, but uh, 16 to 23, Lord willing, today, uh, buckle up. But by way of catch up from last time, uh, last, uh, last time I was here, uh, which if memory serves might have been in, in July, no, it is July, it was sometime in the last couple of months, uh, we did verses 10 to 15, uh, and the, the sort of summary that I would give from that uh, came with the start of either servants of God or service of God. And the points were servants of God are what Christians are. We exist to selflessly and joyfully elevate our king. Service of God is fruitless unless God gives the growth. And so focus on him. Thirdly, servants of God will grow in accordance with God's will and plans, not necessarily that of our own. Fourthly, servants of God are servant nobodies. We exist solely for the common goal of serving God. Fifthly and lastly, service of God built on the Christ foundation in accordance with the scriptures will withstand the fire of testing and be rewarded on judgment day. And this, uh, this present message I've entitled uh, Our Good and His Glory. Because in the the, the latter parts of the the chapter, Paul lists, as he's sort of touched on in in times past in this letter, he touches on, again, the the fact that the apostles, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and all these various other things are given to the church in order for, for their good, for our good, and in order to build us up for God to his glory. So hence the, the title of the message, Our Good and His Glory. But we'll read from uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, through to the end of the chapter, just to give a bit of background. From verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In our verses for today. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this age is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness 
And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is God's word given to us and let's pray. Lord, I've prayed it and I've said it before and I'll do so again unashamedly, Lord, that you have given us in this place great access to the the entirety of your revealed word and to innumerable uh, other means that would aid us in the study of your word. So I pray that our, our study of your word, the depth of knowledge we have, would be commensurate with the freedom that we have to study it. And I pray this day that you would help us to be attentive from the youngest to the oldest and that you might uh, feed us with the the thing or the things that you have prepared for us this day. May we understand your word rightly and to that end aid me as I preach, Lord, to preach only what is true. And I pray this to your glory and in your name. Amen. It really is a, a wonderful way that Paul starts in this uh, in these few verses and I, I don't know what your reading of scripture is like but certainly as I've studied this in more detail uh, in in preparation for this message uh, verses 16 and 17 which I'll read now uh, really struck me do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you if anyone destroys God's temple God will destroy him for God's temple is holy And you are that temple. Verses 10 to 15, as we read a moment ago, uh, speak of Jesus as the Corinthian Christian's foundation and the subsequent work that is done on that foundation, some work withstanding the fires of testing and other work being burned up. And so verses 16 and 17 describes the Corinthian Christians as God's temple. The work done in verses 10 to 15 was done unto the Corinthian Christians as God's temple. And of course, we uh, of 2022 are beneficiaries of that work also. We are God's temple. And especially verse 17 shows God's great zealousness and his great love for his people, which of course is more than just a an emotional kind of love that's wishy-washy, but is a a love which demonstrates itself uh, most poignantly in the cross of Christ, as we know. But to to the end of God's great zealousness for his people, and I think I might have given this example from uh, from the pulpit in this church as well, but it's it's illustrative for the point. Uh, Paul Washer, in, in one of his messages somewhere in some country that he's been to all over the world, uh, recounts his his love for his wife. And he says something along the lines of, you know, I, I absolutely love my wife. And if somebody was to, uh, to touch my wife, to mistreat my wife, you'd better watch out. And so that's a, uh, perhaps a holy man and his, his love for his wife. But he goes on to say that in even greater effect is the love of God for his bride, the church. God has a a great love for his bride, the church, and great zealousness such that, as I said in verse 17, for God's temple, sorry, uh, 
if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Let me tell you, as a person who uh, has the the privilege and the blessing of of teaching God's temple from time to time, it's a, a verse that I ought to take to heart. If anyone destroys God's temple, if anyone perhaps misleads God's temple, God will destroy him. God will uh, discipline him. But I think the, uh, the example from verse 16 and 17 is perhaps uh, even, even more pronounced. If someone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person because God has a great love and zealousness for his temple, for his people. Just a, a brief bit of Greek Temple in verse 16 is the Greek word naos and is rightly translated as temple. And it comes from a a primary root, which is nao, which means to dwell. So consider that. Do you not know that you are God's temple? You are the, the dwelling place of God if you are a Christian here today. The fact that God would would dwell in us, a sinful people, ought to produce, I think, at least two things which produce a snowballing effect on one another, being both wonder and fear. Wonder because who are we that God's spirit would dwell within us? What great mercy and grace is that of the, the infinite God who created all things, who sustains all things and sees fit through the blood of his son, to dwell within us, his people. We are creatures created from the dirt. When you walk outside after church today, creatures created from that. Creatures who have sinned against God, yet creatures whom God has set his love upon. Creatures whom God sent his son to die for, that we might live and be with him, his spirit dwelling in us and it ought to produce great fear we are God's temple not our own temple we are God's temple with God's spirit dwelling within us we are God's we belong to him at risk of stating the obvious this body even is not our own and we ought to treat it and the actions that result from it in accordance with the owner's specifications Thankfully, he's given us a, uh, a rather dense instruction manual. But that produces really uh, countless applications in everyday life. If we, in this body that we have, uh, have a, an obligation to live in accordance with the owner's specifications, then every single second of every single day under the lordship of Christ has an application therein. The wonder and fear, as I said, ought to have a snowballing effect on one another. Something perhaps somewhat like this. The more we meditate on the wonder God's spirit dwells within us, the more we'll want to know him. The more we'll be drawn to his word, the more we'll fear him. The more we ought to meditate on the wonder God's spirit dwells within us and so on and so forth. Round and round we go. Wonder, fear, wonder, fear, ever becoming larger and larger. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. The dwelling place of our God is holy. And if we 
consider the the temple of the Old Testament of the Old Covenant and all of the all of the work that went into describing how that ought to be built, the fact that uh, the high priest was only to go into the holy place once per year and not without having sacrificed and all of the sacrifices that went on and all of the uh, the artistry that went on to creating that temple if we it's kind of easy to consider that God's temple is holy if we think about all of that. That was a, a physical place which we as physical, tangible people have perhaps an ease of contemplating. And so keep that in mind, that's the temple, but the reality that pointed to was something greater. It pointed to God's temple in the new covenant being built up, and you, Christian, are that temple. So consider all the complexity of the Old Testament uh, temple. You are that temple. An amazing thing. Holy means worthy of reverence, great respect, reflecting the holy otherness of God. You are holy. You are God's temple, God's dwelling place, and God's dwelling place is holy. This should be taken as a present tense, and this is really just an amazing point once again. This should be taken as a present tense objective reality. You are Christian, are holy. Christ's blood has been poured out for you if you are in Christ. Heart surgery has occurred such that that heart of stone has been taken out by the master surgeon, the heart of flesh put in, such that you are malleable for the sake of of God. You are attentive to his ways. You love his ways. You've gone from the, uh, the condition of sinner to saint, Your sins have been paid for and you are now covered by Christ's righteousness with God the Father seeing you as Christ. This is, I guess, relatively simple, basic theology, but it's something that we ought not to lose sight of. Because if we truly contemplate it aright, it will produce, once again, great wonder and fear within us. God the Father sees you in accordance with the righteousness of Christ. In accordance with his righteousness and not in accordance with your own sin. And surely if we understand that fact, it will produce acts and motives within us in accordance with that holiness. As James says in chapter 2 verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? That is a false faith. But the one who truly understands that we are holy and we are holy by virtue of what God has done on our behalf, that person will have true faith which produces works in everyday life. So my point from those verses 16 and 17 being that God's temple, dwelling place, is a reality for the believer, it ought to produce great fear and or with attendant good works. So verses 18 to 21, I'll sort of do in in one hit. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness 
And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. He catches the wise and their craftiness is, uh, is taken from Job chapter 5, verse 13, and is one of the responses of, uh, of Eliphaz. And in full, the, the sentence that Eliphaz says is, he catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. And so perhaps it's obvious, but the, the word translated as craftiness is used in Scripture as a kind of devious craftiness or deception. Uh, we can, uh, in other contexts, think of crafty as a good thing. You know, somebody who uses uh, wisdom and has a lot of smarts and so produces a crafty end. But generally, if not always, when it's used in Scripture, it has the, the connotation of a, a devious, uh, evil kind of craftiness. Wise, but not the kind of wise that we want to participate in. For instance, Ephesians 4 verse 14 says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, same word, in deceitful schemes. And as the chief, sorry, the scribes and chief priests come to Jesus to ask him about paying taxes to Caesar in Luke 20, 22 to 23, they say, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, and goes on from there. So per verse 19, the wisdom of this world is folly with God. This world's wisdom is, is fundamentally anti-God. And it, it bears repeating that there are, of course, occasions where we see what might be thought of as, as godly ways and godly wisdom, even in those who don't name the name of Christ, even in those who are not Christian. This is not because they've somehow uh, produced godliness within themselves, but because God sees fit to restrain evil in their lives and because he's put them in his world where his ways only really work, occasionally they are going to, people of the world are going to live in what might be considered godly ways. But it's God's restraint of evil as opposed to a reflection of their true heart condition. If God were to fully let the, the unregenerate go, we would fully see that the wisdom, quote-unquote, of this world is fundamentally anti-God if everything was to be taken to its extreme. And so because of that, those extremes, the wisdom of this world being fundamentally anti-God, that's why we must become morons, the, the word translated from folly. That's why we must become morons to the world in order to become wise to God. So here's a good uh, practical application, a good rule of thumb. If you are unsure of if something is, is worldly wise or godly wise, compare what is being proposed to the Ten Commandments. How does it match up? Is the thing that you are proposing to do in accordance with, with truth? Is it in accordance with... Uh, Perhaps right sexual conduct? Is it in accordance with uh, being true, not cheating, in, in honouring God as the only God, or is it otherwise to it? Fairly simple but practical uh, application. So there is a link drawn by Paul, which is sort of the culmination of those two statements, uh, drawn by Paul between the wisdom of this world and nefarious or deceitful craftiness. 
where you see people who are wise in the world's eyes, you will see craftiness and not the good kind. So that sounds like a good enough statement and is probably theologically true, but where have we seen this demonstrated in the world today? Well, potentially uh, in the actions of some leaders during the heat of the COVID pandemic. You would hear statements such as, well, that would go along the lines of, you would think, you know, love your neighbour. It's the right thing to do. But was it really done with godly motive in mind or was it done with some sort of craftiness as defined here? And it might be too easy and broad an example, but say in organised crime, a lot of these uh, mob leaders uh, would be very wealthy, very successful, quote-unquote, people, which have are probably great relationship managers and negotiators. But how did they get there? Nefarious and deceitful craftiness, not godly wisdom. And a timely example for this kind of year in tax returns. He catches the wise in their craftiness. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Surely that ought to be a warning to those who would add just a little bit to their return here, claim just a little bit extra, just exaggerate a tad. The Lord catches those who are wise in their own eyes. He catches the wise in their craftiness. Turn with me to to Romans chapter 12. And in a moment, I'm going to read from verse 14. He catches the wise in their craftiness. What a warning. One of the catechism questions that I do uh, with our family most nights uh, says, does God know all things? And where Silas feeling a little bit more bold, I might get him to answer. But he's, the answer is yes, nothing can be hid from God. So does God know all things? Yes, nothing can be hid from God. So nothing can be hid from God, plus God catches the wise in their craftiness equals a pretty good reason to fear the Lord. And it's also, it equals a good reason for the regenerate, for Christians, to have great contentment and peace. And in contradistinction, which is a jolly large word for this time of the morning. In contradistinction to the, the world's ways, the world's wisdom, uh, read with me from Romans twelve fourteen. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become evil, but overcome evil with good. Not a great deal of worldly wisdom in those verses, but plenty of godly wisdom. 
You'll see in those verses that we ought not to seek revenge against the nefariously or deceitfully crafty. We leave this to the God from whom nothing can be hidden. And so far as it depends on us, uh, do good to those who are evil, verses 20 to 21. Leave, live peaceably with all, verse 18, and overcome evil with good. This is the wisdom of God. This is uh, the wisdom that we see most poignantly in Christ and again most poignantly in his cross. Something which uh, in for all intents and purposes, from a worldly standpoint, was a great loss to that king, uh, but we know was the greatest victory. It was full of godly wisdom and absent of worldly wisdom. So the two points from those verses. The wisdom of the world is fundamentally anti-God. And the second point, the Lord knows all things and will bring judgment on those things and people who are worldly wise and crafty. So hence, we should pursue God's wisdom and ways. Now, I hope that you'll, um, you'll allow me a brief rabbit hole here. I want to have just a brief word about a textual critical issue within this text. And if you don't, want that, don't know what that means, don't worry, you're about to get some information put on you. But I consider that these things are useful and good to teach from the pulpit because there are those, not many, but those who consider, uh, who are not Christian, that they can poke holes in the Bible, they can poke holes in the, the Christian message uh, so as to defame it or so as to uh, show it to be at a loss, not a real thing. Uh, and potentially there is one of those issues here, and I think we have a, a good answer, a good apologetic if we understand it properly. So the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile, is quoted from Psalm 94, verse 11. The Old Testament, if you were to, to flick back there, says the Lord, or Yahweh, knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. Just a slight difference. The word for, for futile or but a breath is the Greek word mataoi. Futile, but a breath. It's translated as futile, vain, useless, um, or can be used to mean uh, empty, meaningless, with no real substance. That's the connotations that the word has. And so I mentioned the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew version. The Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. Stay with me. The, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it has, uh, in English, the Lord knows the thoughts of man or anthropon, that they are vain, futile, but a breath. That, that use of man there accords with the Hebrew original, which has Adam, Adam, man. The New Testament text, the way Paul uses it here, as the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So Paul has taken the word man and instead put in wise. Why mention this? Paul picks up on a verse and meaning from the Old Testament and modifies it slightly to fit his current point. Some questions to ask ourselves. Does this create a contradiction from the original context which it was taken from, from Psalm 94. It does not. 
nor is Paul's intention to necessarily say in a a 21st century sense that here is a a letter-for-letter copy and paste from the Hebrew original into the New Testament. He's not making that claim. And though he modifies the verse, he does so firstly and very importantly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and secondly, in such a way that complements the original Old Testament and fits his immediate point or context well. So there is no contradiction created. There is no major difference in theology. There is no real reason to poke a hole in that text. And all this to say, you can trust your Bible. The words in front of you are are good, are trustworthy, and you can trust it. And if you, can, if you read back just a little further from verse 18, you can see why Paul uses wise instead of man, as would have been a, a more word-for-word word of the original. Paul, is, Paul, rather, not poor, is drawing critique against worldly, especially deceitful and nefarious wisdom, noting that God will catch the man or the wise who is involved in such an activity. So hence it, it sort of channels his his usage from man broadly to wise or quote-unquote wise men more specifically. Rabbit hole over. Verses 21 to 22. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. So let no one boast in men, he starts off with. The use of of man or men in 1 Corinthians is not necessarily uh, like we would use the world to mean the ways of the world. Uh, Rather, it refers literally to, to men, male people. So let no one boast in men, in people, but rather let us boast in God, by whose power and fuel men are prompted into action and on whose foundation men build upon with their works either to stand on the day or to be burned up. For all things are yours. In my study, I I looked at uh, Matthew Henry's concise commentary on the whole Bible, which is, I guess, one of the standard free works that comes with Bible study software. Um, But in summarising verses 18 to 23, he gives this wonderful statement. He says, observe the spiritual riches of a true believer. All are yours, even ministers and ordinances. Nay, the world itself is yours. Saints have as much of it as infinite wisdom sees fit for them, and they have it with the divine blessing. Life is yours, that you may have a season and opportunity to prepare for the life of heaven. And get this, and death is yours that you may go to the possession of it. It is the kind messenger to take you from sin and sorrow and to guide you to your father's house. Things present are yours for your support on the road. Things to come are yours to delight you forever at your journey's end. If we belong to Christ and are true to him, all good belongs to us and is sure to us. Perhaps a wiser man would stop there, but I'm going to further explain it in my own words as well. Paul or Apollos or Cephas are yours. 
apostles and or teachers, in the case of the apostles at least, on whose foundation the household of God is built, with Christ as the cornerstone of the holy temple, the most important and foundational bit. Apostles, preachers, teachers, books, confessions of faith, biographies of saints, Bible colleges, podcasts, the internet, these things are given to us to build us up in the Lord, to equip us for the work of his kingdom. And so it makes no sense that we would boast in any particular individual, that we would associate ourselves to be a, a Paulian or an Apollyan or a Cephian, a Peterian or anybody else. Because all of these things are given to the church in order to build us up for the kingdom's sake. The world is yours. God gives us many things in this life to richly bless us. To quote from James again, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The world, things in this life are yours, are given to you for your benefit, for his glory. Life or death, or life and death, are yours. Life gives you, as Matthew Henry said, a preparatory season to serve Christ and to grow daily in anticipation of forever being with him in perfect communion. We are in this life called to be workers in his vineyard, builders in his construction, discovering the gifts and talents that he has given them and using them for the sake of his kingdom and to build one another up. Death is yours, and I just loved what Matthew Henry said about that. Death is ours to usher us into eternal glory. It is also ours in that the one who holds the keys of life and death is in us and has won the victory over death. And hence, because we are in him, we have victory over death. It is, in a sense, ours. To bolster that point, 1 Corinthians 15, a little bit further on, verses 54 to 57 say this, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are in him, we have the victory over death. And so, in a sense, death is ours. The present, the future are yours. Things in the present and those in the future are gifts given to us by God for us to learn and worship him. And what certainty in comparison with the shifting sands of the world does this give us? If we consider our current climate in a, a world which currently has such an uncertain state with world powers, authoritarian and atheistic schemes, inflation, rising interest rates, God is saying to us that the present is yours. The future is yours. You you have today, you know well enough about today, you don't know about the future. It's somewhat uncertain, but God is saying the present and the future are yours, Christian. 
you have certainty because you are in Christ. The point from those verses, God, by his power, authority and kindness, has given us all things for our good and his glory. Hence the title of the message. And lastly, finishing off with verse 23, the end of the chapter. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the world, life, death, the present and the future are all ours because we are Christ's. We are in the one who has authority over heaven and earth, to whom all things have been given. For those not in Christ, all of these things which bear witness to God may well add to the light that adds to their judgment. Because all these things in principle or directly witness to God, and so those who refuse these things are without excuse, are unapologetus, are without an apologetic. But for those in Christ, for us here today, all these things are given to us for our good and his glory. We have voluntarily bowed the knee to God, and so these blessings are ours. Christ is God's, and I I almost hesitate to to say much more being this close to the end of the message and the, the depth of theology that could be gone into and messages upon messages that could be preached on that statement, Christ is God's. But in order to give a, a very high-level overview of it uh, and to commend to you your own study on it, all persons of the Trinity are co-equal and co-eternal. They all have equality with one another and they have all always existed. It's not as if the Father was at one time and subsequently he created Jesus who subsequently created the Holy Spirit. No, all three persons of the Trinity are are co-equal, co-eternal. That is true and may be referred to as, big fancy word, the ontological Trinity. The economical Trinity refers more to the roles we see the members of the Trinity playing out in the created order. And in that sense... Christ, the second member of the Trinity, voluntarily took a role of subordination for a time, and hence you are Christ and Christ is God's. Again, it's not to say that uh, God the Father has this uh, authoritarian rule over Jesus who is uh, lesser than him. As I say, they are co-equal and co-eternal. But in the the roles which they play in the created order, uh, there is a differentiation the Father having a a commissioning-type role has given all things into the hand of the Son who gives effect to this commission. Consider the Great Commission and also uh, Psalm 2, which says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God the Father uh, saying, Ask of me and I will give these things to you. The point. We have these blessings because we are Christ's. And Christ is God's, the owner of all things, who is zealous for the good of his people and his own glory. So to conclude, there are some some delicious things within these verses. Uh, But the points that I've laid out today are are these. And unfortunately, I couldn't think of any uh, catchy start to each of these lines. So you just have my, my draw for each of them. Being God's temple, dwelling place, is a reality for the believer. 
It ought to produce great fear and awe with attendant good works. Secondly, the wisdom of the world is fundamentally anti-God. Thirdly, the Lord knows all things and will bring judgment on those things and people who are worldly, wise and crafty. Fourthly, God by his power, authority and kindness has given us all things for our good and his glory. And lastly, we have these blessings because we are Christ's and Christ is God's, the owner of all things, who is zealous for the good of his people and his own glory. Let me encourage you to read through these verses again, verses 16 to 23. Such an amazing thing that God has such a zealousness for his people, such a love for you and me, such that he would say that you are holy. You have been made holy. And if someone were to destroy you, I will destroy that person. And not only that he has given us that gift of salvation, of of changing us from people who would go uh, from hell to people who would go to heaven, but he has given us all things in order that they would be servants of his in order to build us up to his glory. Uh, Two amazing things from these verses. Let's pray. Lord, uh, probably for most of us, these things are familiar to one extent or another. But I thank you, Lord, that we are not supposed to go looking for, uh, for new inventions within your word. Lord, we are to recount the things of old, and indeed we see how these things apply to our everyday life. Lord, help us in the created order that we see, uh, even in this day, to see these things reflected, to see how you have given us all things in order to build us up for your name's sake. And Lord, may we, with appropriate awe, with fear and wonder, may we consider that we are your temple. And Lord, may our works uh, be in accordance with that fact. May our works be in accordance with holiness. And may we be pleasing to you to that end, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.